This week on Political Research Digest, How Policy Made Americans Segregated Homeowners. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Our homes are economically and racially segregated, and not by accident. Local and federal policy contributed to our unique housing market and who was excluded from the benefits. The stories of white flight to the suburbs understate the early role of local zoning and urban development. But those left out of the housing market also had real agency in changing policy, helping to overcome discrimination in the mortgage market. Today, I talked to Jessica Traunstein of the University of California, Merced, about her new Cambridge book, Segregation by Design. She finds that cities actively created segregation, worsening their public services, only to lose white homeowners to the suburbs as soon as their internal segregation was threatened. And those boundaries still matter for our voting today. I also talked to Chloe Thurston of Northwestern University about her new Cambridge book, At the Boundaries of Home Ownership. She finds that the federal government set us on a track towards subsidizing the private mortgage market rather than the providing public housing. But advocacy groups for racial minorities, women, and the poor did make some progress expanding the market, even though the discriminatory policies were hidden from public view. Both say politics and policy are too often left out of the conventional stories. For Traunstein, those policies created segregation, which made us unequal. The main takeaway from the book is that local governments, through their control over land use and their policies of zoning, land use regulation, and redevelopment, have created segregation along race and class lines in the United States. And this segregation then produces inequality in access to government benefits like well-paved roads, good schools, clean and uh, useful parks, as well as clean water. Um, All of the things that governments provide become segregated as well as, as residences when we have race and class segregation. For Thurston, the politics are so hidden, Americans don't even realize how odd our housing market is. The most important takeaway of the book to non-academic audiences is really just the fact that mortgages have anything to do with politics at all. When I tell people that I'm studying the politics of mortgages and I've written a book about it, if they're still awake long enough to ask a a follow-up question, they're pretty skeptical that their mortgage has anything to do with politics. And and one of the things is, if, if you think about it, it is actually kind of absurd how mortgages work in the U.S. So... I want to buy something, a house that costs multiple times my income. And I go to a stranger and I tell them that I want to put a tiny amount of money down. I want to repay them in 30 years. Uh, You know, a lot can change in 30 years. I could lose my job. I could change my job. And I also want to pay the same interest rate over that entire 30 years, unless interest rates go down, in which case I want to repay my loan immediately and refinance it. This is like a pretty absurd amount of risk for any lender to agree to. Interest rates can change. I can lose my job. uh, Lots of things can happen in 30 years. And yet it's really American, right? This is just the norm. We take for granted that this would be available. And it's not the case in any other country. You're usually expected to pay a higher down payment, pay a penalty if you wanted to refinance. And usually your interest rate fluctuates with the market, which makes a lot of sense. So um, we, we largely take this for granted. And the system exists largely because the federal government decided in the 1930s to enable it to exist. The conventional wisdom about segregation is mostly driven by a debate between economics and sociology, says Traunstein. So most of the work on segregation has been conducted by 
economists and sociologists. And their work is incredibly powerful and deep and meaningful. And we know an, an enormous amount about segregation, particularly the economic and sociological aspects of segregation from these scholars. But we know relatively little about the politics of segregation. And that's where my book comes in. So political science has been essentially uh, silent for, for a lot of this debate. And at the local politics level, um, there has been not very very much written about the local political contributors to segregation. We know some amount about the uh, federal politics and policies that have contributed to segregation. But my book is really comes in and says what is happening on the ground in local in at the local level. So the economic story is that people uh, from different racial and ethnic backgrounds have different socioeconomic statuses, right? So whites are wealthier in the United States uh, relative to blacks and Latinos over the history of the United States. And that this allows whites to live in wealthier neighborhoods and, and prevents blacks and Latinos from living in wealthier neighborhoods. And the, the story goes that this is essentially how, how we get race and class segregation. The, there's another story, the sort of sociological story suggests that uh, many whites in the United States are racist and have preferences to live only among white neighbors. Now, both of those stories are uh, are accurate. We do have socioeconomic differences across racial and ethnic groups in the United States, and we do have a great deal of inequality in income and wealth levels in the United States. We also have a history of racism and preferences to live among uh, white neighbors um, for some white residents. Where my book comes in is to say, although those accounts are correct, they're insufficient for explaining the patterns of segregation that we have, and they're insufficient for explaining change over time. And the missing piece here is that it's local governments that create the opportunity for groups to segregate along these lines by building housing in certain places and not in others, by placing public benefits in some places and not in others, and public nuisances in some places and not in others. Local governments have the power to determine which neighborhoods are accessible to white and wealthy residents and protected for white and wealthy residents and which are not. And the public also seems to define the debate about the role of economic decisions versus racism. My sense is that we have moved to a place, particularly among the white, in the white public, where people believe that these choices, that the choices they make about housing are, uh, are really about what they can afford, right? So that they live in a nicer place because they can afford it, not because they're participating in uh, racist behavior. So I would say um, my, my general sense, and I don't, you know, I, I don't have um, a lot of, of data on this, but my general sense is that particularly in the white public, the sort of economic story is most compelling. I think people of color are much more uh, easily persuaded to believe that racism plays a big role in this sorting process. But I think that neither of these uh, sort of perspectives really takes into account the local politics and local policies that create these outcomes. Although there are lots of people who understand that zoning and land use regulation and uh, redevelopment have played a role in segregation. It's just that the sort of conventional wisdom uh, doesn't talk about those things first. 
In the mortgage market, Thurston says the conventional wisdom is that it's a technical field where only the economic actors influence policy. Or the submerged state. Um, and so it's an area, it's exactly the kind of area where we would expect the main architects and influencers to come from the industry. And we would assume that a lot of people don't, sort of ordinary citizens don't really mobilize in these areas. They don't even recognize the role of the government. And so that's where my research intervenes, um, you know, both in the scholarly literature and then also in some conventional understandings. It challenges that view, first by showing that the mortgage industry itself, um, at least the dominant players, were very loudly opposed to the very idea of a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, which, again, we take for granted now. Um, they thought this was absurdly risky. This was something that was proposed during the Great Depression, um, you know, right after uh, risky lending created one of the worst, or actually the worst at the time, financial crisis in the United States. Um, and, you know, so they were very concerned about this. They, they lost um, this battle. Um, and they were also very concerned about later policies to alter lending rules, including, including outlawing um, redlining and sex discrimination. So in some sense, the players that you would think would have been the most active um, were against these, these changes, um, which, which is surprising and, and challenges some of the conventional wisdom. Um, and then the other area, um, the other sort of thing that my research finds is that, you know, while it turns out that mortgages do have these hidden and submerged qualities for a lot of folks who benefit pretty seamlessly from the government's role here, um, for those who don't, those who have difficulty getting access to credit on these standard mainstream terms, it's actually a very politicized area. Um, so, you know, many state, many activities of the American state might be hidden in some way, but they're not hidden from all and they're not depoliticized just because they're hidden from public view. Both Trounstein and Thurston bring politics back to the story, and both authors set the stage going quite far back in history. Trounstein tracks how cities became major providers of public services to address real problems, but in the process became dependent on white property owners. In the early part of the 1800s, cities uh, were just developing, right? At that time, most of the United States population lived in small villages and on farms. We were an agricultural nation for most of the 1800s. But cities started to grow in the middle of the 1800s. And that really took off in the latter part of the 1800s and the early part of the 1900s. And as cities became bigger and gathered population from the countryside and immigrants from uh, around the world, they were, they became really gross places to live. And you can, in some of the early writings, you can, that you can really feel how they were stinky. They were overwhelmed with garbage and people were dying. People were dying because they were drinking polluted water. They didn't have access to clean milk from the countryside, and there were no sewer systems. Also, many cities had enormous problems with massive fires, conflagrations, which would burn blocks to the ground within seconds. And so cities sort of at that time had to decide, are we going to collectively try to do something about our state of affairs or not? And a lot of the early history at this time makes it clear that the decision to provide collective goods 
was not an obvious decision. We were a country that very heavily was very heavily reliant on private provision of fire forces and night watchmen and uh, wells. But the business community um, that was sort of part of the Industrial Revolution in the United States really pushed to encourage cities to develop these public goods. And homeowners, property owners, were played a big role in this. At the beginning, from the beginning, we have been a country, had a lot of property speculation, a lot of uh, valuation of property has been part of the, the development of growth and of wealth in the United States. And so these joint processes of property valuation as well as a desperate need to to determine whether or not we were going to provide collective goods led the charge to have city governments become providers of public goods. And they start building water systems and sewer systems and picking up garbage and providing schooling for elementary school children, lighting streets, paving streets. A lot of these different things that we sort of take for granted that cities do now um, started in the middle part of the 1800s and really ramped up in the early part of the 1900s. At the same time, cities were uh, that, that property owners were gaining wealth from having increased value for their for their properties, cities were also gaining more property taxes as property values increased. So there was a joint effort that led to these developments. And from the beginning, white property owners were very powerful players in this process and drivers of this process. Thurston tracks how the federal government created the American mortgage market, but kept it privately subsidized. The most important federal policy in the housing market, at least as it relates to, to, to mortgages and mortgages as we know them, is the Federal Housing Administration, which was part of the National Housing Act of 1934, and Fannie Mae, which was created in 1938. Um, and these two policies, the policy that created the FHA and Fannie Mae, respectively created government loan insurance, um, insuring private lenders against default, uh, and a secondary market on which private lenders could resell their loans to further reduce sort of the risk. And so this provided a big incentive for lenders to adopt a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, um, which was otherwise unimaginable to them, um, and to adopt it on a very large scale. And so uh, initially, though, the National Housing Act actually had very little to do with housing, despite its name. Um, And it had everything to do with unemployment. So if you rewind to this point in time, um, this is still during the Great Depression, Employment in a lot of sectors has begun to rebound, but one area where it hasn't is construction. Uh, There are still some 2 million unemployed construction workers in 1934, and the Roosevelt administration was concerned about how to revitalize construction employment. And so they came to view the housing market as one possible route forward. Um, There were years of deferred maintenance due to the Great Depression. So there was some demand, um, latent demand for um, housing repairs and for new housing. But the problem was that banks were not able to lend. They actually had money at this point um, that they could have lended, but for a variety of reasons, they they were unable to actually lend it to borrowers. At the same time, the government didn't necessarily want to loan directly to people either. Um, One of the sets of conversations that I unearthed while I was doing this project was that it might create a moral hazard where people become less likely to repay if they thought that their loan was something that was coming from the government instead of a private lender. Um, So that's sort of how how they ended up um, with this 
system. Um, the other reality was that it was just a lot easier to accommodate existing businesses um, and industries than for the government to try to actually replicate that task itself. So they created instead of you know a direct loan program, an alternative where they provide insurance to lenders um, uh, to extend lends to, to citizens. And so the idea of the Housing Act and the FHA was to ensure lenders against default risk as a way to spur construction demand and solve the unemployment crisis in that sector. Well, and one of the reasons that it's been so stable is, is for the same reason it was created in the first place, which is that it keeps construction jobs uh, flowing. Um, it keeps the real estate market booming. Um, and there are a lot of concerns uh, politically about any sort of policy that would slow down um, the activity in, in the sector. Other countries prioritize public housing rather than long-term fixed rate mortgages. I mean, so one thing that, that we ended up doing more than an, at least European counterparts is locating housing for middle-class citizens in this government-backed housing market. Around the same time, sort of 1930s and in the decades preceding that, other countries thought that maybe they could also support middle-class rental markets uh, more, including subsidized housing for middle-class citizens. So in Germany, for example, it wasn't really that unusual for even a professional to be living in what could be called public housing. This is also true in the Netherlands. That The term public housing means something a little bit different. It doesn't necessarily have the same pejorative meaning as it does in the U.S., but that's also because it was seen as um, an option that was viable, um, not just for the lowest income of citizens, but also for, for middle-class um, and professionals. So that was one route, was to do more to support um, public housing and to make it um, a non-means-tested program in the way that the U.S. did. This, in a way, um, I mean, the other was, was just to sort of focus more on, on private rental markets, too. The idea of supporting home ownership to the extent that the U.S. does um, just doesn't travel um, to, to many other national contexts, or to the extent that it does, the institutions for enabling it. That policy background set the stage for big battles in cities. Traunstein tracks two major policies that built segregation, zoning and urban renewal. The focus on, on zoning and urban renewal uh, really came out of reading early histories of how cities went about planning for their futures. and. It became clear to me that basically immediately city planners, people who were interested in charting the geographic development of the city, uh, were big fans of zoning. And by zoning, I mean drawing uh, the city up into separate places. Places where separate uses can occur. So we have some parts of the city for residential location. We have some parts of the city for business location. Sometimes we have intermingled uses, but uh, zoning is what determines what goes where in a city and what can be built in a particular location. So zoning, uh, the first zoning laws were actually not about, you know, keeping stinky factories away from residential areas. They were, in fact, about regulating racial and ethnic groups. And some of the earliest zoning laws come out of San Francisco, where we have um, the city of San Francisco regulating where Chinese residents can live and where they cannot live. We have other examples in the South where cities are determining where black residents can live and where they cannot 
live. And these early zoning rules um, sort of ran the gamut from economic uh, distinctions, where we can put apartment buildings and where we can't, to these racial distinctions. In uh, the early 1900s, the Supreme Court rules racial zoning unconstitutional. And so all of the zoning that follows that early Supreme Court decision basically relies on economic zoning in order to produce all of the different goals that the zoners wanted to produce, be they racial segregation or economic segregation, or just sort of business residential segregation. Urban renewal comes in because it is uh, the next big moment in sort of new kinds of policy that's happening at the local level. Starting in the 1930s, cities under great strain from the depression are trying to figure out how to reinvigorate their economies as well as take care of many, many residents who are in poverty. And they embark on these programs of urban renewal to both invigorate the economy and house unhoused people. And the process of urban renewal takes the same patterns as the earlier patterns of zoning did, which is that they reinforce and then generate new forms of segregation within cities. She says most of today's focus is about how we got segregated suburb, but it all started within central cities. When the highways get built and people who want to move out of the central city are able to move to the suburbs and suburbs become service providers on their own, um, as housing, home ownership becomes increasingly available in the suburbs, we see this process of segregation move from within cities to across cities. And then fairly rapidly, suburbs adopt the exact same policies that the cities had adopted previously to segregate not just neighborhoods, but their whole city. So I don't see my explanation as being independent of these other explanations at all. In fact, they're very closely related. It's just that these other patterns of homeownership, highways, uh, increasing inequality have not taken into consideration the mechanisms by which this segregation actually plays out on the ground. Then federal politics and local politics linked to create suburban segregation. I think that none of this was inevitable. There are two factors that are occurring at the same time that are reinforcing. One is that the federal government is underwriting a massive exodus to the suburbs. And they're doing this in an effort to shore up the construction market and the housing mortgage market, as well as building this massive highway system. This allows people to move out to the suburbs, but they're only allowing certain people to move out to the suburbs because of a lot of different mechanisms that were built into these processes, they were racist. And people of color could not get the same kinds of housing loans that whites could to move out to the suburbs. So we create this massive suburbanization process that's underwritten for white residents. And it does not allow people of color the same access to to that opportunity. People of color are at the same time, there is the growing civil rights movement and there is increasing victory for 
for people of color within central cities. And I, I show that there's this period of time where there's lots of people of color running for office, um, but actually losing in uh, at the sort of beginning of the of the civil rights movement. And then eventually people of color begin to win election to office. So I don't see that these this is an either or sort of story, but it's it's a both sort of story, right? We have whites being pulled to the suburbs, being underwritten um, by these federal policies. At the same time, we have the rising civil rights movement and people of color finally gaining more political power within central cities. And ultimately, what I find, what I argue is that it's easier to control politics in the suburbs. So if you want to create a homogenous neighborhood, you have to fight for control of the city government to do that. If you lose control of the city government, there's no more ability to create that homogenous neighborhood. But if you move to the suburbs and you take control of the whole city government, you don't have to worry about creating homogenous neighborhoods. You can make a homogenous city. And you can do that by implementing zoning and land use regulations that prevent people of color or at least make it very difficult for people of color to move into your city. And Traunstein finds that segregation has real negative consequences for the whole area. So we have segregation that's between neighborhoods within a city. And what I find that that is that that kind of segregation reduces the overall level of public goods provision in a city, right? So if you have a more segregated community, what you have is a place where neighborhoods are less likely to essentially cooperate. And we see uh, a lack of investment in all sorts of public goods. We have roads and policing and parks and sewers and water are all depressed in these kinds of segregated places. And one of the pieces of evidence I show is that segregated cities have much higher rates of sewer overflows. And this is a nice piece of evidence um, because we know that everybody hates sewer overflows, right? So you don't, we, we would never want to argue uh, that some places are okay with having sewer overflows and that's why they underprovide for their sewer systems. No, it's, we, that's an Im, uh, unbelievable sort of stance to take. So Assuming that everybody wants to have as, as few sewer overflows as possible, we can say that segregated cities are doing less well at providing public goods. We can also say that segregated metropolitan areas where we have more segregation happening across city lines, we see increased inequality in who has access to, to public services. And this is a story that I think is pretty well known, right? We have some cities that are all white and some cities that are basically all people of color. And those cities have very different levels of service provision. And that links it back to my original interest in, in writing this book. And it creates a vicious cycle that's very hard to reverse because segregation creates property owners intent on protecting it. But the extent may be dependent on geography. Segregation is self-reinforcing, and it's self-reinforcing at a whole bunch of different levels. Once you give people access to a neighborhood that has high property values, and you assert that you're going to do something that's going to threaten those high property values, the uh, political backlash is absolutely enormous. It's much easier to maintain segregation than it is to undo it. And we have seen a layering of land use regulations across the United States that have only increased and exacerbated segregation overall, on average. Now, the question of 
is there any way out of the cycle or are there some cities that are doing better? The answer to that is a contingent yes. Traunstein's book begins with a graphic novel about a couple deciding where to live. She says individual decisions matter, but it's hard to go up against institutionalized segregation. The institutional racism that is created by these land use policies is basically not undoable by individuals. It's only undoable by an institutional structure, and that is government, right? So if we think that these beliefs about test scores and who makes a good neighbor and which neighborhoods are going to have a lot of crime are actually rooted in the process of institutional racism, the only way to get out of that is to undo the institutional racism. So I don't, I I agree with you that, um, that the graphic novel sort of allows the couple to sort of feel okay about themselves. But ultimately, the answer is not for more people to to make individual level decisions. Although we should make individual level decisions that decrease segregation, the root of the problem will not be solved until we fix the institutional racism. Minority city politics helped reinforce suburbanization, Traunstein says, but it wasn't the primary driver. The desire to fight racist policies within the city is an important driver of the political decisions that get made in the cities. And that contributes in part to white flight is is one of the arguments that I make and that whites see black uh, political power as threatening to their ability to maintain segregation and it makes suburbs all the more um, attractive. But I don't want to say that the politics of central cities is the predominant driver of, of suburbanization. It's not. And the data that I have don't, don't, wouldn't support that. The, the bigger driver of suburbanization are the federal policies like the uh, mortgage policies and, and the building of the federal highways. But the local politics in the central city contributes to the sense that suburbs are a more welcoming place for for people who want to maintain homogeneity. Homeownership policies at the federal level were also critical. Chloe Thurston tracked them from the beginning, finding very early engagement from the NAACP and the Urban League to influence them both publicly and privately. I'm really exploring sort of the prehistory here. This is before the federal, the Fair Housing Act and the community reinvestment movements. This is really in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And the way I characterize what the NAACP did was uh, sort of a process of discovery um, um, and also uh, a letter writing campaign. And so in the 1930s, right after the FHA was established and actually became operational, Lenders in the FHA were pretty cagey um, about divulging what their underwriting criteria were, and particularly when it came to issues of race. Um, they flat out denied that they used any racial criteria in these decisions. And now, in, in retrospect, we know that they did. Um, Panahasi Coates um, has publicized a lot of the research into this, and so has Richard Rothstein. Um, so it's really, it's part of the public discourse now, but it wasn't then. Um, and... Um, and so this made it very difficult for the NAACP to, to really wrap its head around what was happening. They knew that um, local real estate markets were already pretty discriminatory, but it seemed like something else was happening, too, after the FHA was established. And um, so the book documents um, this one sort of moment in 1938 where a white um, acquaintance of the assistant secretary of the NAACP, Roy Wilkins, um, 
tips off the organization. Um, he had this acquaintance um, who's not named in the letters that I uh, looked at, um, but but was sort of listed as having some knowledge of the FHA and being sort of linked to it, um, tipped, off, tipped off the NAACP about the existence of a policy that FHA had to restrict access to blacks. Um, and so they said it existed. You might want to look into it. Um, but also don't attack them uh, outright. Um, I, avoid a full uh, frontal attack or direct inquiry. And so the NAACP investigates this. They gather what they think is irrefutable evidence of racial discrimination before they confront the FHA um, and later FDR in writing. And um, while there's a little bit of publicity around this in the black press, it's not a mass campaign. Um, it mostly happens below the radar, these letters between the NAACP leadership and um, the FHA leadership and, and the president about these specific ways that FHA policy is restricting access uh, to mortgage credit for blacks. Um, they also, the NAACP, um, has a decades-long crusade against restrictive covenants. Um, and this goes through the courts. This is a, a bit more public. But um, that campaign is followed by another behind-the-scenes campaign after uh, the Supreme Court rules against the um, legality of restrictive covenants with Shelley versus Kramer in 1948. And that behind the scenes campaign gets the FHA to actually honor the court's ruling, which it had sort of refused to do. Um, and then one final way, um, at least in this particular case, um, uh, these advocates mobilized, um, um, and this pertains more to the Urban League. Well, the Urban League actually uh, exploited its own connections to different businesses and business associations to try to get lenders and builders and realtors, but they weren't successful there, to become more interested in minority housing issues. Um, they set up minority housing committees, and they pointed out to these organizations the opportunities that were in this housing market that they had been overlooking. So... Um, the bottom line here is a lot of the activities were behind the scenes. That might be one reason that we don't know a lot about them. Um, and they tried very deliberately and explicitly not to elevate these things um, into electoral politics. Um, and they tried not to have a frontal attack either when they could avoid it. They had some policy wins. Um, the FHA changed its underwriting criteria. It eventually honored the Shelley ruling about restrictive covenants. And it even created a new mortgage credit program specifically for um, black applicants who had been unable to get funds. But it wasn't really enough. And like I mentioned, this is sort of the, the, the prehistory. Um, there were still these problems that persisted of racial steering and blockbusting. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that white homeowners and um, real estate professionals, both black and white, all became invested in this color line um, in a way that made these changes, while real, probably insufficient. She says a lot of today's segregation history acts like it was a recent discovery, but minorities recognized it from the beginning. You know, there's been a lot of discussion recently about the idea of redlining and the, the role of the federal government in explaining durable material racial inequality in the U.S., uh, wealth inequality in particular, and there's a risk in those discussions of viewing um, these as recent discoveries. Like, you know, there was this mystery about um, wealth inequality between black and white households, and now we finally solved it. Um, and one of the things that, that the book does is by looking at the prehistory, um, it shows that we didn't actually just discover this right now. Um, advocates discovered this in real time as it was happening. 
Uh, it certainly raises questions about why we think we discovered it now. And I think part of this is related to the sort of stealthy um, political responses that, that advocates took to these problems. Other parts are related to the fact that these are still durable problems. But her story is not just about racial discrimination. She also tracked the 1970s movement of women's organizations to transform mortgage law. The real big challenge here with the women's movement was that uh, they actually just needed to convince women, and by they I mean advocates like the National Organization for Women, that credit discrimination against women was actually a thing. Most people just didn't realize that this was a problem or an issue. Uh, if they couldn't get a loan or they found their access constrained, for example, it was pretty normal to be asked to provide a letter from your um, gynecologist saying that you were on birth control. Um, they just thought that was kind of normal, you know, that there was maybe some actuarial basis for that treatment and that there was really nothing political that could be done with it. So, um, so here, the real challenge was actually convincing women that they were being discriminated against and that there was um, something that could be done about it in the political system. And so now, in particular, launched this national campaign in women's magazines to educate readers about these issues. They um, placed all of these articles in magazines like Ms. and Ladies Home Journal in the calls, uh, explaining what gender discrimination looked like in lending and asking women to write in. And they, uh, actually, one of the letters that I um, came across um, uh, was from a young Ruth Bader Ginsburg who wrote in to discuss her challenges getting access to a credit card in her own name. But they generated a lot of publicity around the idea of sex discrimination um, and were able to, to frame it as being something that was irrational and not economically sound. Um, and they were able to find these great examples, too, that pointed to the absurdity of um, lenders' beliefs and attitudes towards women at the time. So this is very different from the um, the NAACP in that this is uh, out in the open. It's highly publicized at the time. Um, and it's pretty successful, too. They, they secure legislation outlawing sex discrimination pretty quickly um, in a matter of uh, one to two years, depending on how you count. Um, and the other thing they do, too, is they mobilize at the agency level, um, like the NAACP does, um, to respond to drafts of regulations. Uh, and this actually kind of floors the banks. I think they were surprised and caught off guard uh, that these advocacy organizations would have so much ability to operate at the regulatory level in these very technical and mundane areas. Um, and again, they were pretty successful in even making sure that the regulators uh, acted in, in the way that they, they thought they needed to in order to implement these new laws. And even though the policies were often hidden from public view, that may have actually helped the advocates. It's you know not necessarily a bad thing for these things to happen quietly, and it's possible for um, political contestation to happen quietly in areas that are not well recognized as being political in the first place. Um, so, uh, you know, both the um, African American civil rights advocates and the low income housing advocates um, who were in this, you know, they didn't want to draw too much attention to what they were doing initially uh, because they were worried that that could generate some sort of public backlash that could end up hurting their costs. Um, and so in a weird way, the, um, the relative invisibility of these different areas uh, actually provided them, it, it was actually kind of an ideal circumstance. And so um, one that I'll- She finds surprising influence, but says discrimination still often moved elsewhere despite policy success. I think these were more effective at the time than we give them credit for. Um, you know, 
maybe hinges on how you define and measure effectiveness. But I, I think a very reasonable definition is, you know, did these help to change laws and policies? Um, and they did. And the links between these, these strategies and uh, the sort of decisions and attention that uh, those who had the decision-making power um, gave to these uh, different changes suggests that they, they, they did have um, a role in changing policies. So yeah, I think they were more effective than we gave them credit for. Um, you know, I think there's a caveat. Um, this is where I become the Debbie Downer again. Uh, but, you know, they also, even when they were successful, sometimes they pushed discrimination to new areas. So, um, you know, they might have outlawed it or, 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 or um, changed sort of policies. Um, but they could also help to recreate discrimination in new ways, or at least they couldn't prevent it from happening, um, in new ways that were more difficult to detect and difficult to challenge. Chloe Thurston's story fits well with Jessica Traunstein's because the national government tended to reinforce local policies. I think that this actually pretty largely aligns with um, with Traunstein's arguments and findings, at least as I understand them. Um, you know, so a lot of the land use policies that local governments use um, were adopted by federal underwriters, um, or at least were approved of by federal underwriters as ways to signal that a property was in a, a good, insurable neighborhood that would be likely to, um, to promote um, high property values over time. And so FHA thought zoning was a good way to protect property values. Um, they liked the sorts of um, shopping centers and parks and other amenities um, that Transpain talks about. Um, and so FHA standards largely reflected a lot of those ideas um, that were developed at local levels um, and that local governments helped to sort of put in place these ideas about what kept property values stable. Um, you know, they didn't emerge out of nowhere. Um, they, they started off in these local contexts. Um, at the same time, I think that national policies and regulations might have helped to ossify some of these ideas about property values and it's their relationship to segregation um, and to make it more likely that they'd be adopted in more places and maybe less likely that they would be able to change very quickly over time. Um, and it, so some of this had to do with timing. But Transteen says now the challenge is that local governments can't reverse segregation without help from governments above. We have seen massive changes in the patterns of segregation over time. And one of the stories that was highlighted in the 1990 and 2000 censuses is that we saw a dramatic decrease in segregation within cities. But at the same time, we have seen an increase in segregation across city lines. And that is what has been stable. So even though cities within themselves have become less segregated, we've seen this very powerful, sticky, stable suburban segregation existing. And the only way to address that type of segregation is to go up to a higher level of government and to have states force suburbs to build uh, more in different kinds of housing and to police their zoning processes in a different way. Even though Thurston sees more effective influence by minority groups, she agrees that they were not able to solve the problem, just tinker at the edges of the system. I think there is something a little bit limiting about the strategies that these groups were pursuing. Um, they did essentially accommodate the market. They weren't challenging it too much. And so it's kind of fair to say that, you know, they were making it a little less racist and a little less sexist. Um, but, you know, they, they weren't fundamentally transforming anything. Um, and one implication was that because they wanted these implement incremental changes, they couldn't really advocate for their 
constituents who um, who actually would have been too risky for lenders to lend to. Um, so this meant poor women um, and low-income African Americans kind of fell out of um, the advocacy efforts in um, in those two chapters that I look at: the racial discrimination one and the um, sex discrimination one. And even in the case of the low-income homeownership project. Um, you know, eventually um, the National Council of Negro Women had to come to the conclusion that while theoretically poverty shouldn't disqualify someone from being safe to extend home ownership to, um, that in reality there weren't very many people who were poor and still fit the profile of um, of being able to participate in this program successfully. Um, you still had to have a stable income. And it still needed to be high enough to be able to weather any sort of uncertainties. And so, you know, they they, they did hit that reality um, that you know theoretically this this might work, but in reality, um, there just weren't enough people that that fit, met those theoretical conditions. So where do we go from here? Trounstein says, despite Democrats' newfound success in the suburbs, conservative white enclaves built by segregation and determined to maintain it are still here to stay that white precincts, white neighborhoods that were very white in the 1970s are very conservative today. And I think that that's that's still true. But our suburbs are diversifying. And we have several fairly recent um, excellent political science works showing that the diversification of particularly inner ring suburbs, um, has been happening now for the last 20 years. And as the diversification of these suburbs occurs, we can expect um, changing patterns of politics. Whether there are people, these white, these you know, extremely homogenous white conservative enclaves, n- neighborhoods that have um, become more democratic in this last election, I suppose it's possible, but I don't have the data yet to, to know whether or not that's true. I know that in California, a lot of the blue wave explanation, particularly in conservative places in, say, in Southern California, has to do more with demographics rather than people changing their minds. Thurston hopes that disadvantaged groups can learn from the influence of their predecessors, helping to make the consequences of policy visible. The groups and organizations that I look at here, um, you know, they played a very important role in making the state's role in the market, um, you know, something that was otherwise viewed as not being at all related to the government, um, legible. And they did that uh, because that's what they needed to do in order to uh, have some sort of rationale for um, contesting it for pushing for, for new policy changes. Um, and it took a while. Um, there were some setbacks, but in, in certain ways, uh, that strategy of drawing attention to the role of the state in order to contest it was, was reasonably effective. Um, and this is something that it seems like activists have learned from and have um, used that, that strategy over time. You see it in, in the Black Lives Matter movement, for example. Um, you know, these are very different movements. Uh, but um, the way that BLM activists use video cameras to draw attention to African-Americans, very different interactions with police. Uh, you know, this is something that helps to cast doubt on earlier expe- explanations for disparities in police violence and in incarceration as well. Um, and that's a way that they have worked to generate support for policy change. 
and there's always more research to do. Traunstein is working to find out whether people with conservative views are selecting into their white enclaves or if they are influenced by their surroundings once they get there. One thing I cannot disentangle in the book is whether or not living in a particular place causes people to have different viewpoints or whether the type of people who moved to that neighborhood would have had those different viewpoints anyway. And I classify this as trying to disentangle selection versus treatment. And I have a couple of new papers planned uh, where I'm trying to get at this question. Do neighborhoods create attitudes or do people select into neighborhoods uh, that, that, are a co- that coincide with their attitudes? And Thurston's next step is to help explain racial wealth disparities, which, of course, often originated in segregated housing markets. Sort of the next book project kind of starts off where this um, this ended um, and broadens the scope a little bit too. So um, this is a lot. This project is about underwriting criteria and mortgage in the mortgage market. Um, but one of the reasons that people care a lot about housing, um, and particularly as a relates to discrimination has to do with the asset and wealth dimension. Um, So housing wealth, it turns out, played a big role in um, durable patterns of racial inequality. Um, And uh, there are sort of also what we know now are there are pretty wide disparities in housing values um, in white communities versus minority ones. And that suggests that perhaps getting access to homeownership, which is sort of where I stop my study, um, doesn't necessarily mean you get the same returns on that access. Um, so that's what I'm looking at now, um, not, not just in housing, but in a host of other areas that have to do with, um, with asset building through, um, through public policy. Um, you know, what sorts of, um, after previously excluded groups are incorporated into these areas, what happens to them? There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Jessica Traunstein and Chloe Thurston for joining me. Please check out their books, Segregation by Design and At the Boundaries of Home Ownership. Then join us next time. 